Father, we go back into the teaching today, recognizing that what you did through your son so long ago, in the week that we're studying now, was your provision to us before the disaster came, the disaster of, of our own death. And we're so thankful, Father, for that provision. And Father, we also want to learn from the humility of a man who went into that moment willingly for our sake. Show us those details in our study today and in the weeks to come. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it's taking us a little while to get there, but now we are at Matthew chapter 21 again. But verse 6 is where we pick up. Just to remind you where we are, we're looking at Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. This is at the outset of his final week on earth, that is, before he dies and resurrects. And last week we saw him coming up from Jericho. That's where he had last been. He's on a road that leads up through Bethany, Bethphage, and into Jerusalem, coming in the east side of Jerusalem. And as he gets toward the end of that road, he tells his disciples, get me a donkey, I want to ride a donkey into the final little bit in through the east gate. And the reason he gains that donkey, if you remember, was it fulfills scripture. Zechariah uh, chapter 9 told us that that's how the Messiah would arrive. So he's coming in the way that the scriptures expect that he will come. Now also, remember last week I told you that this is happening on the date in the Jewish calendar called the 10th of Nisan. Nisan is their January, their first month of the year. So on the 10th of their first month, Jesus is now entering the city. This is the day that the church traditionally calls Palm Sunday. And Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover on prior occasions. This is actually the fourth time he's come in the years of his earthly ministry. But of course, this time is different. Because in this case, he's coming as the Passover lamb to fulfill the Passover. And as he comes down that road riding that donkey, crowds are gathering to greet him. That's where we pick up today, verse 6. Let's go there now. It starts this way. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and lay their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. All right, so this is a scene I think most of us have probably heard about, read about, the entry of Jesus. We sometimes call this the triumphant entry of Jesus. It starts with the disciples getting that donkey from Bethphage, which we looked at last week. They bring it to Jesus, the, the colt, the baby, they put their coats on the back of this animal first, I guess a makeshift saddle, and then Jesus sits on it. And then as he sits on it, he goes down the road on the donkey. And as it moves down the road, you then hear that there are members of the crowd, most, Matthew says, are putting their coats on the ground. Now remember, Jesus is on a donkey, so it's not as though Jesus is walking on the coats. The donkey is walking on the coats. And it makes you wonder, what was the point in that? Because it's not as though it's helping Jesus walk. It's for the donkey? Well, it may seem odd, but it's actually a well-established tradition from that day. And in the ancient East, it was customary to greet a king in that way, by putting your coat on the ground in front of the king, whether they're on foot or whether they're on an animal. And there's a good example of that from the Old Testament. King Jehu was one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when he was coronated, this is a small moment, but you get an example. In 2 Kings 9, 13, it says, They hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him, under King Jehu, on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So that just shows you this is a tradition that's been around for a long time. And so the crowd puts coats under Jesus in the path of the donkey as a symbolic statement. What are they saying by doing this? They're saying, Jesus is our king. Jesus is the king. So clearly, the people that are on that road are anticipating Christ walking into the, riding into the city, 
getting coronated as king, and then eventually beginning the kingdom, starting the kingdom in this day. But there's another group in this crowd, and if you notice in verse eight, it says that while most were placing coats on the road, instead of that, there were some who were using tree branches. Actually, Matthew here says they were branches of a tree, but John in his gospel tells us they were palm branches specifically. And palm branches had a very distinct meaning in that day, in the culture of Israel. They were a a symbol of national liberation. You you remember scenes perhaps from World War II where you see the American troops rolling into France and liberating Paris. And somehow the people within uh, Paris, when when this day came, they they managed to have a supply of little American flags. I don't know if the troops handed them out or how they had them, but if you see, there's some scenes from that time in which the French are lining the streets watching the American tanks roll down the road, and what are they doing? They're waving American flags or some were waving French flags. What is the point of that, of that gesture? It's obvious, they're celebrating their liberation. Well, when a Jew wanted to acknowledge the liberation of Israel, they used palm branches. The Jews first did this when they greeted the Maccabees. If you're familiar with Jewish history in the second century BC, before Christ, there was a moment in which some Jewish priests uh, started a revolution against the Greeks who were in charge at that time and it resulted in a, a couple, almost a couple hundred years of Jewish independence before the Romans came in. And when Simon Maccabee first rose to power in that time, he was greeted in the same way in First Maccabees, which is a historical book, not scripture, but it's a historical book of that time. It says this, Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving, carrying palm branches and playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. So it's a way of Israel celebrating someone who liberates them. In fact, after that moment, palm branches became a symbol of the nation itself. If you look at coins, I have a picture here for you, but if you look at Jewish coins that were minted in the time of the Maccabees, and even centuries later uh, under the Romans, Jewish coins had a palm branch on the back in the same way that we have like an eagle or something to represent the U.S. That was their national symbol at the time. So that's enough of the photo. Thank you. So you have two groups in this crowd. And by what they're doing, you see they have two different perspectives. On the one hand, you have those throwing coats on the ground. And then on the other hand, you have those putting palm branches on the ground. The first group with the coats, they see Jesus as Messiah. They see Jesus coming to set up a kingdom that will defeat Satan and will establish God's kingdom on earth. They put coats on the ground. Then you have a second group, though, that saw Jesus as a Moses-like conqueror who is coming in to defeat Rome, liberate Israel from Roman authority, and establish a new Davidic dynasty, a a new version of Solomon's dynasty, if you will. That's what they're expecting. So remember I told you last week that as we go through this study of the final week of Jesus' time on earth, we're going to do what I'm calling myth-busting along the way. Because traditions in the church play a large part in what we do and how we do it, especially in the week of Easter. We're not in that week yet, of course, but we're studying the events that we commemorate by that week. And depending on your background, depending on what religious tradition you might have grown up with, if you came out of a particular denomination of sorts, you probably have what I call traditional baggage. You have things uh, that you've been taught that are part of this routine of how we observe Easter, and, and in some of the cases, those traditions are proper and true to the Bible, and they're great. And then in other cases, those traditions are, I call, extra-biblical. They're not wrong necessarily, but they're not in the Bible. They're just things we've adopted because we like them. Kind of like a Christmas tree at Christmas. You know, it's not in the Bible. It's not necessarily unbiblical. It's just extra. 
And then there are a few things that we have adopted as tradition that are just frankly unbiblical. They're contrary to what the Bible would have us say or do. And one of those unbiblical traditions is the way that we commemorate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that Sunday before he died. We commonly call that day, as I said, Palm Sunday, which is to say we remember the ones who were laying down the palm branches on that day. But the ones who were laying down the palm branches were making a political statement, not a religious statement. They were celebrating a military leader who was going to bring liberation to Israel under Roman authority. They were not celebrating the arrival of Messiah for the cause of the kingdom, as we understand it. And so because those who had the palm branches had the wrong idea, we shouldn't be remembering that week with palm branches, should we? The better way to remember it would be to call it Cloak Sunday or Coat Sunday. Now, I know that doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way that Palm Sunday does, but it's closer to the truth. It's, it's recognizing that those who lay down their coats were recognizing Jesus in the true sense of who he was. Now, obviously, I, this is not a major point of theology. and you know, I'm not suggesting we go off and start some movement in the church, you know, hashtag cloaks, not palms or something. I, no one's really being hurt by this kind of stuff. I get it. I'm just using this, though, as an illustration. And here's what it illustrates. It illustrates how we can, if we're not careful, accept tradition without question, without fact-checking, and end up in the wrong place. And if you do that, eventually, you may find yourself adopting behaviors and beliefs that just aren't correct. And some of those errors could be significant. Once in a while, they can be pretty significant. And False doctrines have grown out of that kind of error. We have whole denominations. We have whole false religions that are nothing but the propping up of one false tradition after another in place of the truth of the Bible. And that's the biggest issue here. That's why I've stopped and made this a moment in the teaching. Because eventually, if we cling to tradition so blindly and so loyally, we can get to the point where we think it equals Scripture, or at worst, we value it over Scripture. Such that when someone comes to us, like in an example of this sort, and says, let me show you that palms aren't really the right thing, that's a test of humility. Because in that moment, you'll have a choice. You have a choice to say, well, I guess all of these years, what I was taught was wrong, and I'm glad now that I know the truth and I'm happy to accept it and move on. Or we can say, I don't like the feeling of being shown that I'm wrong. I don't like the thought that my family, my background, my denomination, everyone I know has been wrong on this point, whatever it is. So I'm going to choose to ignore your input and what the Bible says so I can cling to what I have forever believed so that I can feel better about myself. And there's a tendency in all of us to do that, right? That's a test of humility. I just am bringing this up because this is not the last of what we're going to see. We're going to see thing after thing after thing all week in which some minor, some less, you know, more, more significant but all of them an example of how we can cling to tradition just because we were told this is how it is. We need to look at our Bibles and make that the rule that we follow. And when we discover that our tradition is contradicted by the Bible, we need the humility to say, I was wrong. I'm glad I know the truth now. I had an email to the ministry this week from someone, uh, just a beautiful email. I wish I had printed it out. I, I didn't think about it till this very moment. But it was a lady who said, we've been thankful listening to your teaching. We've been in a Catholic church and we realize now we've been duped. That was the way they put it. And we're so happy that we've been able to see the truth. That is the truth of what the Bible actually says about the gospel. That was her point. And I was glad to see her say that. All right, back to Matthew. The crowd is greeting Jesus with coats and palms, and they're singing also, you notice. They're singing from a, a part of Psalm 118. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That phrase and that psalm in general is a messianic greeting. The rabbis had taught Israel that that psalm, Psalm 118, was what would be said to the Messiah when he arrived to set up the kingdom. That's what the psalm is about, and they were correct. So everyone in this crowd, recognizing this moment as the Messiah's arrival, they're singing the psalm they're supposed to sing. Now remember, when I say that, there are two different attitudes in the room about, in this crowd about what it means. Uh, that is, there's different views of what the Messiah comes for. Some think he's coming for a, uh, an earthly kingdom and a liberation from Rome. Others understand, no, this is a spiritual thing. God is bringing something altogether different. But the point is, they both see it as Messiah. They're both singing the same psalm. And as usual, in this crowd, you also have Pharisees. And the Pharisees don't like this. Now, you don't see it in Matthew's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, look at this. Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the rocks will cry out. So the Pharisees recognized when they heard this singing, they recognized the crowd was chanting Psalm 118, which meant the crowd was acknowledging Jesus as the coming Messiah. And they don't like that. Obviously, they don't agree with that. So they tell Jesus, silence your disciples, rebuke them. What they're asking Jesus to do, in effect, is renounce any claim to be Messiah. Because if he had told them to be quiet, it would have been effectively him saying to them, I'm not who you say I am. Which is why Jesus does not do that, obviously. What he says instead is, if this crowd does not proclaim Psalm 118 at my arrival, then the, the rocks, literally, the rocks of the earth would start singing this song. And what he's saying by that is this. He's affirming a basic biblical principle, which I think is best summed up in Isaiah. There's a, a verse in Isaiah, many of you have heard probably, Isaiah 55, 11, where the Lord says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So the Lord speaks about his word almost like a, like a military agent on mission sent out with this secret mission or with this powerful uh, uh, mission. And the Lord says, when I send my word out, which is a way of saying, when I proclaim something, it will not go out without doing what I pl uh, plan for it to do, what it was intended to accomplish. And simply put, nothing's gonna stop the word of God from coming true, nothing. The word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. And if you want proof of that, it created the universe. So, it's literally true that when God says something, nothing can stop that thing from happening according to the way God intended it to happen. In fact, Jesus said, if somehow these Pharisees had managed to silence the crowd, and that phrase stopped being uttered at the moment it was supposed to be uttered, Jesus says the very rocks, the creation itself, would have been moved to speak. Now think about that for a minute. We're not saying that the, that the earth has a mind. We're not saying that the earth is thinking. It's not. It's not alive. What we're saying is this. The creation itself obeys the word of God. It's not a matter of will. That is, you and I have a will. We use our will to make decisions, and that decision could be to obey or to not obey the word of God. But we do not have the ability or the will to stop the word of God from being obeyed. We just may not participate in that obedience. But somebody will. And if it's not a human being, it'll be a rock which is to our shame if it comes to God using rocks in our place. The point is, you, you will see God's word fulfilled. That is how certain and sure the word of God is. And Jesus says that to these men. And on this particular day, you have a crowd, at least some, who were willing to obey what was written. 
and they sing Psalm 118. But I should also note, you also have some in that crowd who were not willing to obey Psalm 118, namely the Pharisees, and they're not singing it. And that fact takes us back to chapter 12. Do you remember, if you were here, that in chapter 12, that's where we saw Jesus declare that the nation of Israel in that day, in that generation, had committed the unpardonable sin. And as a result, that generation of Israel would not receive the kingdom that had been promised to that nation. They would not see Jesus set up the kingdom on earth in that day as a result of the nation committing that unpardonable sin. When they rejected him, they rejected their kingdom at the time. And if you remember, at that same time, we also studied how Jesus said, because of their rejection of him in that day, Israel as a nation would not receive that kingdom until some future day when this happens. And we read this in Luke. In Luke 13, 34, Jesus gives the nation that ultimatum. And he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her brood together under her wings. And you would not have it. So behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which refers to Psalm 118 again. So here's what he said to the nation at that time. He says, you rejected me just like you rejected prophets in times past, so I leave the house that you have desolate. What he means is this, the temple, the ruling dynasty of of kings, and the nation in the land itself, desolate. And that all came to pass in AD 70 and has continued on in decades and and millennia since. He says, I'm going to leave you in a desolate situation for a period of time, and I will not come back, which is a reference to his second coming, He will not come again and offer the kingdom again and set up the kingdom as promised until the nation says what they're supposed to. That is, they receive him as Psalm 118 requires. That's the phrase. Now, in this moment, you see the crowd using that phrase, using Psalm 118. So it begs the question, is this the moment Jesus was talking about? Is this the moment when that promise and that requirement is being fulfilled? The answer is no. Why not? Well, the Pharisees are our reason, among others. That is, there is a continuing dispute within Israel over whether or not Jesus truly is the Messiah or not. You see that with the Pharisees, obviously, but Matthew even gives us another statement in the next verse to make clear that not everybody is on board with this greeting and this arrival moment. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds, that is, the ones who were on the road, The crowds were saying, oh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Now think about that for a minute. Those in the city, first of all, were wondering, what's all the fuss about? Who is this guy? Isn't it remarkable? After three plus years of Jesus doing ministry, including miraculous healing, teaching, and all the rest, there are still people in the city of Jerusalem who don't know who this dude is. Hey, who is this guy? Well, that's clearly not an acceptance of him as Messiah. And then you have those who did stand out front and greet him. And even among them, when the crowds are answering the question, who is this guy? They're not saying the Messiah. They're saying, oh, he's a prophet. Here again, Matthew's point is there was anything but consensus over who this man was and what his arrival meant. And therefore, because you do not have Israel as a whole proclaiming Psalm 118 and receiving Jesus as Messiah, they have not met the requirements that Jesus stipulated in Luke 13. We still have yet to see Israel embrace Jesus as their Messiah. The standard is all Israel. Not some, all of them. 
Now, what happens when some Jew accepts Jesus, some one or two or three or a family or, or whoever? Well, it's exactly what you expect to see happen. If someone believes in Jesus, they are saved. Them, as an individual, they are now destined for the kingdom. They are now part of the family of God, just like when you believe, no different. What we're saying is this, the nation as a whole will not see the physical kingdom arrive on earth and set up in Israel as promised until all of the Jewish people receive Jesus. Not all who've ever lived, we're talking about all who are alive for that moment. Just as there was a moment in the first century when Jesus said, would you like me as your king? And the nation had a chance to say yes or no, and the answer came back, some yes, most no. Okay, sorry. Similarly, until there's a moment when all Israel says, Jesus is our king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus will not return and give them the kingdom. That's what we're waiting for. That is, what the world waits for in terms of the second coming of Christ is the moment when Israel receives him, as Jesus said, must happen before they see him again. Now, if you're sitting here wondering, well, how in the world would that ever happen? Well, it's told to us in Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 actually describes that moment when it will happen. And if you want to study that passage, come to the Revelation study. It's part of what we'll be doing in the weeks to come in Revelation. When we study Christ's second coming, we will study how the Jewish people play a role in bringing Christ's second coming about through their faith in him. As Paul said in Romans 11, then all Israel shall be saved. It's a reference to all who are alive on earth. Meanwhile, Jesus enters the city and in what he does first is goes directly to the temple. Now I explained last week that the pattern Jesus will follow for the first four days of this week, starting with Sunday, is that each day he'll come in from where he sleeps overnight, somewhere in the hills of the Mount of Olives or in Bethany. He'll come back every night or every morning, go to the temple, and spend part of the day in the temple. And he does that for four days to f- fulfill the requirements of the Passover. Because you remember, Jesus is the Passover lamb. And in the way the Passover was given to Israel in Exodus, they were told that on the 10th of Nisan, which is this Sunday, that Jesus is walking in, on the 10th of Nisan, a family was to take a lamb and bring it into their household and keep it in the house for four days. And after the fourth day, on the 14th of Nisan, on Passover, they were to kill it and make it the Passover meal. And during those four days, the family would inspect the lamb to make sure that it was free of any defect because the lamb had to be perfect, spotless and without defect. And on this day, Sunday, Jesus, being our Passover lamb, has to fulfill that part of the Passover. So what does he do? He goes into a household, the household of God, the temple. And he spends each of four days there, and while he's there, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes will be inspecting him for defect, trying to trick him, trying to trap him, trying to find fault in him, but they won't. And that will lead into the fourth day in which he will go to the cross. But this is the first of those days. And as he walks into the temple on this first day, on Sunday, the Lord makes a statement about what this is all about. He says, in verse 12, we read this. Jesus enters the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer and you are making it a robber's den. All right, so what's this about and how does it relate to the Passover. Well, first of all, the Passover was, was one of three feasts among the seven that are on the Jewish calendar every year. It was one, three of those required that Jewish males of a certain age would travel to Jerusalem to observe the feast in person. It was a requirement. 
So three times a year, men from all over Israel were walking all the way down to Jerusalem. And on this particular feast, Passover, you would see a city that's very small. I mean, if I could, it's about the size of a typical city block, residential city block in San Antonio. That's the whole city of Jerusalem uh, within the walls. Three million people would flood into that area. It would, and, and outside the walls, camping in the hills and so on. It was complete bedlam for a week. And this happened three times a year. And... As uh, Jesus has come into that setting, and in the temple grounds itself, the temple, we don't have time to get into this, but the temple's a fairly complex structure. We'll look at this more in future weeks. But the outermost confines of the temple was a big open court called the Court of the Gentiles. And in that area, Jesus now walks into that area, and he finds a common sight, a sad sight. He sees the Court of the Gentiles filled like a merchant's bazaar with booths of merchants of one kind or another doing business in this space. And there were two principal forms of commerce that would take place in that area. First, you had money changers. So in the, in the same way that when you go to a foreign country, you go through an airport, and typically, if, if this is what you choose to do, you might go up to one of these booths in the airport and change your money before you get to the place you're going that has a different kind of currency, right? Well, for a Jew living under Roman occupation in that day, the temple grounds themselves were a bit like a foreign country within Israel because under Roman rule, only Roman coins could be used to purchase goods in greater Judea, which was under Roman authority. So if a Jew wanted to buy or sell anything in Judea, they had to use Roman coins to do it. But within the temple grounds, that was the jurisdiction of the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin of of Israel. And they outlawed Roman coins within the temple grounds because the Roman coin usually had an an embossing of Caesar. And the Jewish authorities considered that an idol. And as a result, it was violating the Ten Commandments. And so the Jews were not allowed to handle Roman coins in the temple. So... As you came to worship for this once a, you know, a year thing where you had to travel down and go to the temple and so on, you would come with money. And worshipers who came into that area and wanted to use their money to give gifts to the, to the temple, their temple tax, or uh, to make a, an offering, etc., they couldn't use their Roman coins. So the first thing they did was they'd go to one of these men who were setting up in the greater courtyards, the Gentile court, and they would change their money over to Jewish shekels from Roman drachmas. Now, of course, there was a fee associated with that. And more than that, the temple authorities took a cut. So in return for being able to set up your booth, you paid the Roman authorities, I mean the Jewish authorities rather, a certain amount of money for the privilege to do business in that way. So the priests of the temple and the, and the, and the guard of the temple were getting a cut from all of that commerce taking place as they changed the money. Now I want you to notice Jesus does not say, you have made this a merchant's den. He says you've made this a robber's Den. So we have to be un- understand that the concern here is more than just the fact that there's commerce. I don't think that he necessarily wanted a lot of commerce either, but the issue here is it's dishonest commerce. And how is it dishonest? Well, it goes to the second style of commerce that was going on in this time, because in addition to the money changers, you had people selling animals. Jesus mentions doves here, or Matthew rather mentions do- doves, but they were also selling goats, and they were selling lambs for the Passover. Because if you've traveled from somewhere else in Judea, maybe up in the Galilee, you've had to walk three days to get to this feast, you're going to have to have a lamb at the end of it all because you're going to celebrate the Passover. People didn't typically drag a lamb with them for three days down to Jerusalem. Number one, you had to feed it along the way and take care of it, which was kind of difficult, not easy. Secondly, what if it got hurt? 
What if it got, you know, it fell into a hole, got lame, brushed up against something and scratched itself. Now it's got a spot, a, a defect. Now it's going to be worthless to you. So rather than take any chances, you didn't bring a lamb, you brought money. You go into the temple grounds. First, you've got to change your money because the money you have is not going to work in that, that space. After changing the money, then you would go to one of these merchants who was selling certified spotless lambs. And you would, I'm, I'm serious, they were, they were rabbinically blessed and certified spotless. And you would buy one of these lambs. Now, buying a lamb that you need for the Passover in the temple ground is a bit like buying a sandwich in the airport. It costs about $250, but you're hostage because you didn't bring a sandwich with you on the plane, right? And that's effectively how this worked. The priest now got a cut off of that business. So they're taking money off the lambs. Now, what if you were an enterprising family and you said, you know, we don't live that far. Maybe we're in Bethlehem, half a day walk, not that hard. Honey, let's bring our own lamb this year. Uh, We'll avoid having to change all our money and we'll avoid having to buy a lamb. Okay, good idea. So they dragged their lamb to the temple. And this is the routine. The routine was you couldn't just bring a lamb in and sacrifice it. The priests had to um, authenticate, uh, verify that your lamb was spotless. That's what the law required. So you'd go before the, the inspection rabbi and he'd look at your lamb and wouldn't you know it, it's got a defect. They always seem to have defects. And now you're standing there with this lamb that you can't use and you're like, how are we going to observe the Passover, honey? And the priest's Thankfully, they had a solution. They told you that you could trade in your lamb to the lamb booth and get a spotless certified lamb in place of it if you'd like. And so that was, oh, we're going to be able to do this after all, honey. Great. Take your lamb over there. Get a better lamb. And so they would trade the lamb in. Now you've got the, the need to change money. Now you go change your money. Now you get your certified spotless lamb. You trade in your old lamb, and you're fine. Now, when the next family came in, and their lamb was shown to be a defective lamb, which lamb do you think they got when they traded in their defective lamb? They got the prior lamb that had just been traded in. Somehow, in the intervening moment, it was miraculously healed of whatever defect it had, and the scam continued. And the priests were making money hand over fist through this this whole routine. So, the entire temple operation in and around the Passover, and I would imagine probably throughout the year, had become this giant money-making scheme which kept the Pharisees, well, the Sadducees who had control of the temple and the Sanhedrin and the priests flush with cash from worshipers. So Jesus comes into the grounds of the temple and he sees this and he knows it, he knows what it is, and he goes nuts. He goes crazy in a way. He goes mad with anger. He's experiencing righteous anger on behalf of worshipers who came with honest intentions, and as a result of their honest, humble, submitted hearts, they get financially and spiritually abused by con men, and that makes Jesus angry. Jesus turns the tables over, we're told. It's not the first time he's done this, by the way. John tells us he's done this in prior years, too. This is, I guess, now his calling card. Jesus shows into the temple. All the guys kind of go, whoa, he's coming again. And they move all their stuff off the table, because he does this every time. Every time he does this. And... He quotes from Isaiah 56. He says in Isaiah 56, this is what Jesus quotes from. He says, to Israel, God says, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will never be cut off. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer through burnt offerings and their sacrifices. They will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. 
And Jesus says, that's what this is all supposed to be about. Here's what he's upset about. Remember I said, it's not just that there's commerce. I don't know what he would have done if the commerce was going on, but without any of that trickery. Maybe he still would have been upset, but his comment seems to indicate it's about the dishonesty behind it that is his primary concern. And when he mentions prayer, I think that seals it for me, because here's what I think he's saying. Prayer, by its nature, is an act of humility. You're humbling yourself before God, acknowledging him in all his ways, seeking him in some sense, petitioning him for something, right? And so it it means a certain attitude. When you have a house of prayer, you're saying, this is a place that is designed for people who have that kind of heart, who want to come before God in that kind of attitude. And when they come, what do you want for them? What do you think God wants for someone who comes to him in prayer with that attitude? Well, I don't think it's hard to guess. He wants them to be welcomed. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be honored. He wants them to understand that they've come with the right heart and God hears them, right? Instead, what were they encountering in that day? They were coming into a place that was working exactly the opposite of those values. Think about it. You have people who came in with a heart of humility and submission. How would, how would you have come into that place on that day? Seeing the, the, the pageantry, seeing the authority of all these men, the majesty of the building, you would come with this heart that says, oh honey, we just need to do whatever they tell us. We, we want to do what's right by God. Uh, uh, he says your lamb's not good. We need to get another lamb. Oh, oh, that's good. We'll take it. How much? Oh, whatever is right. I'll just take it. Thank you. People think like that. When you tell them this is what God wants you to do, they lower their defenses. How would have Jews and generally anyone in that time and in that time of, of that place in the Middle East, how would they have dealt with a transaction like this outside the temple? You want that much for the lamb? Ah, too much. I'll give you a quarter of that. Uh, maybe I'll give, okay, 10% more, but that's it. That's my final offer, right? They would have negotiated. They would have worked to something fair. They would have seen the scam for what it is. They're not idiots. But you get in that environment, you see a priest telling you what to do, and all of a sudden you just say, oh man, whatever you tell me, I'll do it because God wants me to do it. And they depended on that submission. They depended on that attitude because it's what let them take advantage of people. And it makes God angry, violently angry. At least Jesus shows us that. So when men and women come along and fleece the flock, taking advantage of our piety, our desire to do what God wants, and using it for their own advantage, you should know Jesus gets mad at that. And the con man's schemes have changed over time. We're not being duped into buying certified spotless lambs, but there's always a new scheme. And there's always someone out there telling you this is what God wants you to do. And they prey upon that heart of submission and willingness. And God said, I want this to be a house of prayer. And of course, in our age, what's the house of prayer in our age? It's not this building. It's your body. The Bible says that the temple of God is where the Holy Spirit dwells. And in this age, he dwells in your body. Your house, that is, your body is supposed to be a place of prayer. And if you have that heart of submission and humility, and you come before someone who tries to take advantage of it, this is what God says happens to them in the end. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And, and listen to this, in their greed they will exploit you with false words, but their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In the end, God knows what's being done to his sheep, and he will defend them in the end. 
But in the meantime, I just want you to know that those bad actors are out there and you ought to be conscious of the fact that when you come before men or women who portray themselves as men or women who can represent God's view or the Bible or whatever, and they turn that conversation to money, that's when your antenna need to go way out. You know, there's a reason why verse-by-verse verse ministry doesn't talk about money, doesn't ask you for money, doesn't make money an issue. We don't, and in the case of this church, it's why we don't pass the plate. You'll never hear us have fundraising weekend uh, you know, whatever these things are that people do, tithing weekend, you'll never hear that here. Why? Well, mainly because we want to put a lot of distance between who we are and who those other people are. We never want to be mistaken for them. You come here with an attitude to serve God, to do what he asks, to listen to the word and to be obedient to it. I never want to take advantage of that. Not for personal gain, certainly, but not for any reason. You need to know that what we talk about is what Jesus would say if he were here, best as I can figure. And in the meantime, we want to be careful about giving anyone the sense that we're part of the same nonsense that's going on everywhere else. We're not. We don't want you. Look, your money matters. This place wouldn't exist without it. But that's between you and Jesus. And if he wants this place to go away for lack of money, he'll do it. Fine. I'll move on. That's up to him. I don't need to sit here and worry about it. But what I am saying is this. When somebody makes that the whole point of why they talk to you about Jesus, you should be really worried about that because something's not right. So I encourage you to test your own heart as well as those who teach you. That is, for the time that we have to serve God, make sure your heart's not about the physical earthly gains of wealth in any form and don't turn religion into an opportunity for that. Jesus hates that. Instead, think about what comes after this world and serve other people in humility and selflessness. That's what Christ is asking for. Let's go to prayer. Father, thank you for the patience of those who listen today. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. I pray that one was met with the other for good effect in the lives who were touched by it. Father, I pray that you would always guide us past those who would try to take advantage of us, protect us from them. And Father, God forbid we should become one of them. Protect us from our pride and our own selfishness in that respect. And Father, as we go out from here, let us be a witness. In the days that we live, difficult as they may be, Father, help us to bring the message of the truth of the gospel and the good news that our life here ends and better things come. And let us be an encouragement to others who may be facing difficulties in those trials. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.